This week's episode of the Film Lovers Podcast is brought to you by President Pierce. No, not the former president, but the precocious and noisy little pup who is one of the stars of the Coen Brothers' latest film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. President Pierce wanted to let you know that this six-part anthology is going to be the main topic of this week's episode, and he wanted to make sure we told you right off the bat that there will be spoilers. But here's the thing. If you haven't seen the movie yet, it is streaming now on Netflix. That's right. A Coen Brothers movie was released straight to streaming. Oh, the confounded incomprehensibility of that decision. Darn near breaks my blood thumper. Nevertheless, we had a great time discussing the movie, and we hope you'll listen in on our conversation and find the same amount of enjoyment from it. Oh, right. President Pierce wanted me to remind you to follow us on Twitter at Film Lovers Pod, where we'd love to hear your thoughts on Buster Scruggs and any other thing movie-related that you want to tweet at us about. In addition to... I'm, I'm getting to it, Prez. I'm getting to it. President Pierce also wants me to remind you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We hear that this helps a lot. So thanks as always for listening, and we really do hope you enjoyed this episode on Buster Scruggs. Prez Pierce, you got anything else? Aw, he says that he loves each and every one of you very much, even David. Well, that's very sweet, President Pierce. How about we let Forrest take it away? I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. Love is a many splendid thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. Love is, is too weak a word for... I love you. You know, I love you. I, I love you. With two Fs, yes. I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. Welcome, everyone, to the Film Lovers Podcast, a podcast for lovers of film by lovers of film. We like to rank, rate, rant, rave, and discuss <laughs> all things movies, past and present. I am one of your co hosts, Russell Dietrich. To my right, he's back after not that long of a hiatus. It's a man who has a heart of gold, Casey Summers. Casey Summers, the man who thinks 2018 is a great year for movies, guys. That's right. <laughs> and formerly That's of... That's why we didn't allow you on that episode. And formerly of Chicago, but currently at the bottom of a pit with a bullet in his cheek, it's David Ryan <laughs> Anderson. David, how are you podcasting? It only hit the gut. How are you podcasting even though you're clearly dead? I am, and I will sit here quietly for the next five minutes until until I reveal that I'm actually, I was alive the whole time. Spoiler right. alert. Well, uh, for those of you that don't know, that was a slight reference to the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the movie we are devoting this week's episode to. But guys, um, before we get to the episode, I, I have a, a couple important announcements for us. You, you guys ready to hear about those? I am. I'm ready. I'm ready. So I know you guys, you know, I'm the historian of the group. Uh, I, I just wanted to say happy anniversary. Thanks. Oh, great. It was our one year anniversary a month ago, uh, November 5th, 2017. That's the date we recorded our first episode. Isn't that special? It is. I'm still awaiting our invitation to the 2019 Academy Awards, but 
Uh, yeah, I haven't been invited to a single screening. Yeah, I don't think the go- yeah. the governor knows. She doesn't know what she's missing. Yeah, but. we haven't been. Nobody's been sending us screeners yet. Invitations to film festivals. They need to catch up. What the heck? <laughs> I met the director of Selena. <laughs> so um, we didn't technically launch the podcast till mid January. So we do have kind of two birthdays. So whenever that date is, we'll we'll have to do a little bash together. One thing that has been happening, though, this just came to my attention, is we've been getting some listener feedback on iTunes. Isn't that cool? It's very exciting. Very encouraging. We have enough. We've gotten enough feedback that we have a review on iTunes, and we are a five-star podcast. Yep. Yeah. So we got um, eight reviews, and I just want to... Go ahead, David. for, For everybody who left us a review a year ago... Uh, to to encourage us and also um, giving us feedback and advice, we we finally read it. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I'm not the most technologically inclined, and I didn't I didn't actually I didn't actually believe people would leave feedback, so I hadn't been checking it. But um, we got to say thanks to David Hicks, Captain Ahab, Unacious, Total Stranger. And dum dum at moving pictures, and then full disclosure, I left a review on there. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna <laughs> thank myself. Um, you left us a four star review. Yeah. Well, it was me. I just think we we have some work to do. So <laughs> now, um, I hear that getting ratings and reviews on iTunes is helpful. I don't know why it's helpful, but it's helpful. So if you haven't left us a rating or a review. Please do, and while you're at it, mention your thoughts on David's current haircut, because he's always looking for <laughs> fashion advice. I was gonna say um, there, there are please... two comments now about how sexy my voice is, yeah. so I appreciate. So we want to talk about the hair. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, please leave a review. A lot of podcasts I listen to at solicit iTunes reviews. Yeah. so please do that. I don't know why, but I think it's important. <laughs> In addition to that, guys, we, we also got um, on Twitter, we got our some other listener feedback. It was actually a correction. So I need to give credit to Alan Hobley and Heather Johnson. They both pointed out to me that Pekin, Illinois is actually pronounced Pekin, Illinois. And I just wanted to apologize to the community of Pekin, Illinois for my offensive mistake. When did we even mention this? This is the last episode. I, I I remember I heard it. Yeah, we were talking about The Shining, and uh, little Danny is from Pekin, oh. Illinois, which okay. is fitting because he's peeking around the corner on his little bicycle. All right. What's, what's next? Uh, how about we do America's favorite topic? It's time for Discuss. Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, wants to kill the movie theater. <laughs> discuss <laughs> why why does he want to kill the movie theater us okay guys um did he say this is are you quoting him what is this it's an indirect quote but basically we're talking about buster scruggs <laughs> today right which is a movie made by the coen brothers and it went straight to netflix and i i had to watch a coen brothers movie which for me is an event on my couch in at home without a big screen so netflix they're releasing a ton of important movies this winter on Netflix. Outlaw King, Roma, The Other Side of the Wind, The Love Me When I'm Dead, 22 July. All of these big movies that 
ought to have been in movie theaters aren't getting decent theatrical runs because of Netflix. They want to kill the movie theater. I'm freaking out. The, I uh, this is Netflix has come a long way since the the days of of Bright and Mute and the uh, Cloverfield paradox. Yeah, do you remember when we did that? We we talked about how bad their movies was. Or <laughs> <laughs> yes, those movies was bad. That. <laughs> so. All these guys, David McKenzie, Alfonso Coran, Orson Welles, um, not Paul Greengrass, but all these guys, the Coen brothers, they, they've all either won Oscars for Best Directing or Best Picture. Not Orson Welles. Has he? Orson Welles won an Oscar for Best Writing, actually. Okay. I checked. That's the only Oscar he won? He only won that, that one Oscar, yeah. The Academy Awards are the worst. Yeah. Scorsese, Kubrick. Man. Orson Welles, yeah. They, Orson Welles, are you kidding me? They're very, they're very good. Scorsese then, won Best Picture. No, he won Best Director for Departed, but it was just like a. It was way too late. It was an apology. Sorry, we didn't, we didn't pick Raging Bull. So, anyways, um, yeah, I've given this this issue a lot of thought. Um, if movies are just released to streaming, is that a bad thing? And I think, I think where I land is it is bad for movies overall because it, it is. I think a part of watching movies is going to the theater. I think it's an important part. So I think it does hurt movies overall. But I think the streaming economy is also good for movies too because of accessibility. So I think there's a trade-off. But bottom line for me, Coen Brothers movies, Orson Welles movies belongs in the theater. Not every movie belongs in the theater. If you remember back in the blockbuster days, there were some direct-to-DVD movies. Yeah, like Tommy Boy. I didn't need to see Tommy Boy in the theater. Yeah, or, I mean, so the ones you listed before, like Bright, what were the ones that you listed? Yeah, a whole bunch of hot garbage. Yeah, I don't care if those end up in the theaters or not, but Coen Brothers movies, Orson Welles movies, um, Alfonso Cuaron movies, they belong in the theaters. You got that right. I So would you say that streaming is good for streaming is not good for movies but it's good for movie watchers it's good and bad it's a it's complicated i think we lose out if it goes straight to streaming because the theatrical experience is an important part of movie culture it's an essential part of movie culture on the flip side what streaming has done is it's brought a lot of movies to people's fingertips that it's made movies more accessible to people that might not otherwise be. Yeah. I think what makes it hard is Netflix is so secretive about their data. Like we just don't know who is watching what we don't know what's popular, what isn't popular. And and really what, what gets my goat about this right now is Roma in particular, like Alfonso Coran, his movies are cinematic events and it, it is impossible to find a screening of this movie. So I'm going to have to watch this beautiful cinematic tale on my 40-inch TV with my Vizio soundbar. And, like, it rattles and hums, you know? It's kind of a crappy speaker. And he did all this amazing sound design that I'm going to miss out on because Netflix isn't willing to invest in a theatrical release. And it just... It baffles me. Like, I don't understand why they don't do what Amazon has done. And... Give it a legitimate theatrical release and then let it stream three months later. Do we not know why all of... Because, like, the Coen brothers and Alfonso Cuaron, like, they can turn out a crowd, you know? Like, they don't need 
streaming to be seen. Do we know? Well, I haven't been able to find any information about this. Do we know why they're they're doing this this way? I have a guess. Um, I, this isn't verified, but um, I think if you look at the history, Netflix has been kind of disparaged by the festival community. So, like, it was really hard for them to get places like Venice and Cannes. Uh, to to recognize their movies as legitimate because they weren't released in theaters, so I think in a lot of ways Netflix Netflix wants to stick it to the industry and be like, we don't need you guys and we don't need movie theaters and we're gonna get more eyeballs on our movies. So to you all, be damned, you know, because I think they they felt disrespected. A lot of those festivals have pulled back. A ton of movies on Netflix debuted it at Venice this year, but it, it's just like. It just feels like an ego thing in a lot of ways that Netflix is just trying to to kind of show their swagger and their dominance in the industry yeah. right now. But what I'm saying is, do we know why the Coen brothers and Alfonso Cuaron and guys like that are Yeah, like they don't need Netflix. Netflix. Well, I yeah, I don't know financially what Netflix gave them because maybe Netflix made them a really nice offer. And we do know Netflix, like Roma, I don't know... Maybe that maybe he had a hard time getting financing for that movie because it is kind of a a unique plot. I can't imagine because there was such a buzz about it coming out of the festival circuit. I can't imagine that he would have had trouble. So maybe Quaron, um, like but, but, might be but more festival by critics. Like, critics and producers are not going to have the same opinions about about movies. You know what I mean? Yeah, like getting the movie to a point where it could be shown at a festival might have been difficult. Potentially, and, and Netflix. Yeah, so that's potentially true for Quaron, but the um, the Coen Brothers they they draw crowds, they make money off their movies, so it, it doesn't totally tra- like. I think the bottom bottom line is its economics. I think Netflix has enough money to offer these people, but it's unfortunate that yeah. Quaron and Cohen, the Coen Brothers would choose that unless right. there's something we don't know. Now, I, I think to Netflix's defense, um, take take the movie Other Side of the Wind and the companion documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. I don't know if that movie ever gets released without Netflix ponying up the cash and, and giving money to, um, oh, what's that dude's name, that director? Peter Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich, yeah. So yeah. I, I do think Netflix is, I'm not saying they're like against cinema, I think they have beef with movie theaters and maybe they have a long play. Like they want to take over AMC or something and, and own the movie theaters too. Yeah. I think, I think Netflix goal is economics and dominance. Dominance similar yeah. to, to Amazon. I, I think that, that, I'm that's just pretty, like, that's pretty much the go-to economic model for uh, large corporations is monopoly at this point. Right. Unfortunately. So yeah, I'm just bummed. I can't see Roma in the theater, but what I'm hoping is, when it gets nominated for Best Picture, maybe they'll do like a broader release. Yeah, me too. I hope. Yeah, I hope Netflix eventually changes its strategy and cares more about releasing some of these to theaters, like Coen Brothers movies and Quaron movies. And I think you're right. Wells, the Orson Welles movie may ne- have never ended up in the theaters. It may have just needed to go straight to streaming. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, like Criterion yeah. releases movies to theater, like. I saw the um, the wow. Apu trilogy and and that was released in the theaters. Um, that's not a big money maker necessarily. I would imagine a Quaron or Orson Welles movie or a Quaron movie would make more money than that. 
So I don't totally know what's going on. Like I, I would not have been. seen. I, I would not have seen other side of the wind or whatever it's called uh, in a theater. No, I, I agree with that. I think that's where Netflix, I think, has been a gift to to film culture is that they in, they invest yeah. in a movie like that getting made, which I think most major production companies that are committed to the theaters, they don't care about movies like that. So Netflix does feel like a real double-edged sword. Like they do a ton mm-hmm. of good. They've totally revitalized the comedy world and they have a ton of great TV shows, but... I just have this sticking point with them over how they're handling theatrical releases. I, th- I think they can do better. Yeah, I agree. David, any last thoughts? Um, yeah, I'm glad that I saw Other Side of the Wind. Um, I did not particularly enjoy that movie. And in fact, I came away from that movie thinking less of Orson Welles and the, and the documentary that, that went along with it. But uh, but I'm glad that Netflix did that, though. You know, I think that was that was pretty cool on them that they put all that together. So, yeah. So Reed Hastings, do better, man. <laughs> but thanks for uh, thanks for all the good stuff you are doing, like Stranger Things. That's awesome. I rewatched The Shining on Netflix. Yeah, this, this weekend. And you and you rewatched uh, you rewatched a special little movie uh, that we like around here, Children of Men. Man, David, just just to warm your heart a little bit, that movie's even better than I remembered. It's really powerful. It's it's really great. It's still not my favorite Quaron movie, um, but it's it's a great movie. Hold on a sec. Let me land the plane. That was discuss. All right, David, go ahead and gush about Children of Men for a minute. Oh no, I I do that enough. I for for everybody uh, who can't see, I'm just I'm like reclining in my chair with my hands behind my head. I'm just soaking it all in. No, I'm I'm so glad. I wish that I could have been with you when you saw it. I have that movie is um the movie that I've watched the most in my life, at least my adult life. And when I watch it now, I can't I feel like I've I've gathered everything there is to gather from it in a way, so I have to watch that movie with other people who had never seen it before, and I kind of become like an experienced vampire where I just I just like get the energy from them, like seeing it the first time, and that fills me with <laughs> with, with joy. No, it's it's masterful how the the narrative unfolds, um, and also how it the movie unfolds visually. There's a lot of camera, both in The Shining and Children of Men. I watched both those movies in the same. I watched three movies yesterday. Holy I watched both daddy. those movies in the same day, and there's so much camera movement as people are walking down hallways, running, riding big wheels. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I don't know if you can better like do a better job depicting a post-apocalyptic reality than Children Children of Men does, and the way it goes from like closer to our reality to more and more um uh chaotic yeah. and um yep. it's just really it's really power and i think this the way of the future of humanity and um key is that her ca- the character's name um yep. her having the the first newborn child and uh i thought it was doorknob in 18 years that's just a really powerful story doorknob so good well you know what? The way David feels about Children of Men, that's the way that I feel about Joel and Ethan Cohen. More <laughs> familiarly known as the Cohen brothers, who released a new movie 
on our favorite streaming platform, Netflix. Available at Netflix.com. Uh, the Coen Brothers, they it they were making a TV show for Netflix, and then the TV show turned into a movie, and that movie is an anthology called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is what we're talking about for the majority of this episode. We love The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, maybe. People are so easily distracted. So I'm the distractor with a little story. People can't get enough of them. Because, well, they connect the stories to themselves, I suppose. And we all love hearing about ourselves. So long as the people in the stories are us. But not us. This will tell the tale. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll spoil and say I love it, yeah. I love it, too. I liked it. My wife didn't love it. I, I kind of liked it. I was not expecting it to be... Like, I was like, okay, it's a Coen Brothers movie, but it's on Netflix. I, I didn't have very high hopes for it. I thought it'd be interesting, but I think this is one of their best movies. All right, so here, here just to give you guys a little background, Ballad of Buster Scruggs is an anthology movie, so it's a movie divided into six parts. And each of the six parts kind of takes a different approach at the Western genre. So it's an experimental uh, Western in a lot of ways. And we just wanted to kind of dive in with the movie and, and talk about what we loved about it, what we hated about it, and just have a, a good conversation. So who wants to get the wagon wheels rolling with well, their real, uh, real fast, comment. I was doing some reading on it before we recorded. And oh, so apparently, the TV show thing was rumors. Joel and Ethan Cohen definitively say it was never intended to be a TV show. I think at one point they were, they had these stories in mind that they wanted to tie them together into one movie, and then they decided to do an anthology. But okay, that's that's really good. Yeah. So, um, who wants to go first? Uh, what What did you love about the Ballad of Buster Scruggs? First of all, immediately, I'm like, this movie is so beautiful. Why am I watching this on my stupid TV? Preach. Like, yeah, like, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to jump the gun with that, that comment, but like, totally. Like, it's so, the sound design is so beautiful. Is that actually, um, I, I'm blanking on the actor's name, the, the guy who actually plays Buster Scruggs. Is that him singing at the beginning? Do you know? Tim Blake Nelson Tim Blake is Nelson. the actor. I, I don't know. It sure did sound like his voice. I don't know. I love him in these Coen Brothers movies, though. Oh, brother, where art thou in this one? Yeah, he's awesome. I could have watched... I wish that that first bit was its own movie. I could have watched that forever. The There are so many different styles on display throughout this whole anthology, like you've got, you know, the the sort of like Oklahoma style musical bit, the sort of spaghetti western type bit to more realistic ones. And they are masters at every single genre that they attempt. I'm so in awe of the Coen brothers uh, uh, in, so, in so many ways, but particularly the technical skill that they have in this movie is so, it's just so evident. Yeah, they're great writers and directors. It's it fires yeah. on every level. I'm so impressed by their writing in all their movies, and especially yes. this one. But yeah, the um, it's visually breathtaking. That fur that opening scene looks straight like it's straight out of a John Ford movie. The quintessential Utah um, or Arizona, or actually, I think it's probably Arizona. 
Western landscape. I love that that opening scene. Like you know, they start off with the book and then they zoom into the Western scene. It's straight out of a John Ford movie. I love that. That I thought his dialogue is so perfect. I um oh, when he like he like kicks the table to make the dude shoot himself in the head. It's like <laughs> sometimes out here you gotta be. You gotta ple- be be downright Archimedean. <laughs> oh man, everything Tim Blake Nelson does in that role, it just cracks me up. I think it's it's hilarious. I that's probably my favorite part it's of the so whole perfect. anthology is that first story because of his performance. And I it's I mean, so and I think I loved yeah. it even more being a Coen Brothers fan and o- having watched Oh Brother Where Art Thou and loving that movie so much. I think I appreciated his com- his comedy chops even more because of his role yeah. in that in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Well, guys, I guess I'm going to be the foil of this episode because yeah, I, yeah. you've been silent. I'm probably the one that uh, listening to you two gush. I'm I'm probably feeling the the most underwhelmed by this movie. I think um, I think it was it felt like vintage Coen Brothers in a lot of ways, but it 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 almost felt like a rehash of things that they have already done really well in the past. If that makes any sense um and even like the the vistas and the visuals like i was a little disappointed this is going to sound so nerdy but i was a little disappointed (laughs) in their aspect ratio i i felt like the movie would have been better served with a a wider aspect ratio than the one they went with and there were times in the movie where the special effects felt especially with the blood in this movie like a lot of the the blood and violence felt hyper stylized in a way that was uh distracting hmm. i guess because it felt like it felt okay. like a violent oh brother where art thou if that makes sense yeah i could see that like oh brother where art sure. thou with murder but i would say that like hyper stylized is what the coen brothers do that's that's part of their thing i would say i don't think so because like i i feel like when they go to vi- they have their like quirky movies like oh brother where art thou intolerable cruelty lady killers and those movies don't have a ton of violence. And then their violent movies like Fargo, Miller's Crossing, and their, their most violent, uh, Old Brother Where Art Thou, like the violence in those movies is very realistic and there, there's no fantastic element to it. It's just honest. Yeah. Now, like there's some silliness, like when William H. Macy is shoving that guy through the woodcutter, that's silly, but it doesn't look, it didn't look fake at, at any point. And the, the violence in this movie felt, in certain vignettes, I should say, felt kind of fake. In the, to me. In the first story, in particular, especially the, 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 the first, first one, one, definitely. But but that might have been but the, the point. The first one's a comedy, though. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't I, a very I think, I think funny it, it's comedy. Intentionally, yeah. But no, but but you're right. Like in the in the second the second uh, story, you've got when they're when they're hanging up um, James Franco, and the dude gets shot in the neck with the arrow. And he pulls the arrow out of his neck and immediately another arrow in the exact same spot hits him. Yeah. <laughs> like that is a, that's a funny moment. It's a comedic moment. It's dark, but yeah, there's not, a, there's not too much other violence in the movie though, to be honest. I mean, the, the bit at the end of the girl that got rattled, but I didn't think that was a funny moment. I thought that violence was done very was pretty realistic. I think right. he's talking more about the first story. The, I, the first two for sure. I think it's just the, and this is nitpicky, but the the blood just looked fake. Like, it, it just felt like it was done in post production, and I think that it was a, digital. Yeah, it was kind of a hang up of mine. Like, this movie had a digital feel to it, and for the Coen Brothers, I always have appreciated that they felt like an in camera 
movie makers like they they really value doing things in camera and this this movie felt very digital very post-production-y very like synthetic and it was just a little jarring for what I'm used to with them because they've never felt like synthetic their movies have never felt synthetic to me and I I don't mean that in a bad way I I just mean it in terms of quality Hmm. could I ask you guys um did you have a favorite vignette I liked them all almost equally. I liked the last one the least. So I really loved every other one except for the last one. Interesting. Isn't uh, that David's favorite? Wasn't that your favorite one, David? I did not say it was my favorite. Yeah, I was like basically like texting you guys between each story, like my thoughts. I couldn't I couldn't not do it. But um the last one wasn't my favorite. What I had said is that I thought the last vignette is the one that tied it all together thematically. And also, I thought it was kind of a a nice ribbon on their entire filmography. To be honest, their whole their whole philosophy in general. But we we can talk about that one later, though, because that was probably my least favorite. To, also, I didn't dislike it. I thought it was actually really interesting. But the favorite one for me was probably Meal Ticket, the one where. Liam Neeson carries around Dudley Dursley. Did you realize that's who that was? It took me forever. I did. To I was that hoping out. I would be the one to bring. That oh, up. that was Dudley. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Yeah. I thought it was uh, the other kid from Harry Potter, the- Neville. I thought it was Neville. Ron oh, Weasley. okay. He looks oh, a lot Neville. different now. Than yeah, he did yeah. In the Harry Potter days. Yeah, he's slimmed up. Yeah. I he lost a lot of weight, especially in the arm and leg region. <laughs> oh gosh. But... Nobody would t- cast him as Dudley now. For... That's true. <laughs> what did you like about meal ticket I, I i found that one to be so um bleak it was really bleak i just thought it was there's so little dialogue in that one everything's told visually or through symbol or like uh the, the eyes like i love the fact that at the beginning of that one you're not even entirely sure the relationship between liam neeson and and this this performer it almost seems like like, are they father and son or something? What What is this? And as it goes on, you start to, like, it starts to reveal that they actually probably resent each other. Maybe at some point they had some kind of affection for one another. Like when he takes them to the brothel and the, the prostitute asks if he wants to, to you know, uh, buy a prostitute or whatever. And he's like, no, we did that once. It's not a good idea. Never mind. He just, like, puts him in the corner. And it's like this idea that maybe at some point they had more of a rapport or something, but now they seemingly just like, like resent each other. And like, as it goes on, his performance starts to become more and more impassioned. Like you really get the feeling that this dude is like on stage performing for his life. Like, I feel like the writing is on the wall earlier that like, this dude does not need to keep me around anymore and I can't survive on my own. Yeah. I, I thought Meal Ticket also had a really interesting statement on sex and violence because in that vignette, um, they chose to cut away during the sex scene and the violence scene, and th- and it it made sure. it made especially the 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 act of violence in that vi- vignette feel all the more powerful because you just get to imagine um, what would have transpired in the hard cut. And and I don't know if you read any of the texts in the book, but I would I was. I would pause it and read. And uh, the book actually gives a little description of that moment. And it, it's just, it was a really interesting, even the, the verbal depiction of how that went down, I thought was really fascinating. So um, I found Meal Ticket to be really disturbing in that regard. 
I thought um, the Dudley Dursley, uh, Harry Melling, his performance, I thought was really impressive. Yes. Watching him, I mean, I he's performing it. passages from the Bible and Shakespeare and different um, famous passages from literature. And yeah. I thought, Ozymandias, like, what a, yeah. what a really good actor. Um, I thought it was, that was a really effective story. A lot of things that David already said that is mostly told visually and through um, just nonverbal communication between the two actors. I actually saw, I thought there was more affection and connection between the two. Just little things like when Liam Neeson's feeding Harry Melling, like he like breathe, he cools down the food for him when it's too hot. Like I thought there was more affection. So I was more surprised by the end. Oh, interesting. But it's I, it's so hard early on. I think I, think I didn't it, see any affection. I think between it teases them. you. Okay, David, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just gonna say. I think I think it teases you. I think early on you're supposed to get that sense. But in retrospect, looking back, it's like was that was that affection or was he basically just doing what he had to do? I mean, the guy he speaks for a living. He has to cool. He, he doesn't want to burn his tongue. Like or whatever, well, you know even what in I mean? the like, sex scene, though he he turns them away during the sex, but then when the sex is over, he turns them back towards them like he only turns them away as long as he had like he wasn't cruel interesting to him so it, it was interesting to me but it was totally heartbreaking that scene at the end here comes a spoiler if you haven't seen the movie yeah just fast forward uh hit the 30 second button a couple times but that point where liam neeson is walking backwards and you you're watching harry melling's face as he's like wondering what's happening and you know what's about to happen to him and it's just so heartbreaking and disturbing watching that like looking at his face when you know what's about to happen to him so did you guys not think that the chicken was a clue to how they met like how he found the chicken was how he found the performer oh like he bought the performer from somebody else that's that's kind of what i wondered is that was he just liam neeson's character is called the impresario in meal ticket was the this actor was he just kind of in a long line of of uh these kind of weird troubadour shows yeah i don't know i don't know if they give us that context uh, yeah i don't know well, that's why the the chicken to me i i think a lot of stuff is kind of up no no i know but um for me at least the, the chicken kind of led me down that road of like um was he just viewing this kid as a spectacle that kind of lost its luster because the crowd size was diminishing and the thing that led him mm-hmm. to switch was the size of the crowd for the chicken. Well, that's part of the power of the story for me is I actually I saw some sort of connection or you're spending the whole story trying to decipher what connection is there, if any, between them. And then the ending, it, like I think so. I, The fact that he's not just a chicken or not just something that was bought, that he's a human being. Um, in relation to this other human being, it just makes the ending much more shocking and disturbing emotionally. I, for me, if it was clear it's, that there was no connection at all and he was just an object to him, it'd be much less shocking to me. And I think they play off that. I mean, there's something in film theory called the Kuleshov effect, which is basically that we as an audience will fill in the gaps according to the clues and the editing and things like that that the filmmaker gives us. And the filmmaker doesn't have to explicitly say a lot of things, but they know that we're going to make assumptions based on what they give us. And I feel like this, this whole segment was made up so, like, of so many instances of this where they're letting us craft a narrative in our minds and we're going to go for a more, I think, human reading 
So by when you get to the end, all of a sudden that that realization of oh, I misread everything potentially. Well, I, is, I, I, I think it's really powerful. I think I viewed it more as um, I'm probably taking a more cynical approach to Liam Neeson's character. Like um, the chicken to me just felt like an insult. Like I'm trading you in for this really funny. It's funny chicken, but it's still just a chicken. Like yeah. he got th- thrown off the edge for a chicken. You know. Yeah, I think there's more there because even after you, what happens to Harry Melling happens, it zoom, there's a close-up on Liam Neeson's face, and he's clearly emotional. He, it's not just a deadpan face. Like there, There's stuff going on there. I think Liam Neeson's character went through like a process over the course of that story, and I don't, I don't, I, I don't think Harry Melling knew what would or wouldn't happen to him. Interesting. Can we talk about the second one a little bit? Um, I just want to say, so David, you brought up a couple points. Um, the second one's called uh, Near Al- Algodones. Okay, so that's the one with the yeah. the bank robbery and James Franco gets yeah. caught it's multiple like times Western. for things <laughs> at first for something he did do and the second time for something he didn't do. So um, yeah. I just love the Coen Brothers comedy and I think you made a couple of important points, David. Like, I think as we're evaluating each of these vignettes, we need to think about the genre they are. And uh, so the first two are, like, I think clearly comedies. Um, and I th- I thought they're both really effective comedies. And the second one I just thought was hilarious. The guy from Office Space is the bank teller with the pots and pans yeah, as his armor. Um, and then just the ironic ending, how he, <laughs> um, how he yeah. ends up with the same consequence for something he like something he 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 ended up with a consequence that he deserved for something he didn't do and then his rye joke at the end like uh, the guy that's about to get hung that's just beside himself and this is your first time isn't it it was (laughs) a hilarious that was a hilarious line oh yeah really funny i'm not a big fan of james franco as an actor i think he tends to overact but i liked him in this Mm. i thought he he didn't over underact in this one but I, i think going to that point this idea of like you know, he he for no reason at all, just random chance, he escaped his the punishment that he earned, and by random chance, he was hanged for something he had no involvement with. <laughs> that feels like so. That's just like a classic Coen Brothers move. That, that oh, is I agree. No country for old men. That is a serious man. Like whatever. That the Coen Brothers are 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 best nihilist existentialist filmmakers like they're or or even storytellers at all at the moment like they the core of their stories is always like we live in a world that does not care about you or what you deserve or anything like that and that's where all all of our stories and characters they live in that world and we're going to show you what that looks like to us and I mean that that's really that's almost every story in Buster yeah. Scruggs. That's actually a good segue into the two that I really loved. Um my two favorites were All Golden Canyon and The Gal Who Got Rattled. I mean obviously you guys know like I'm a I'm a little bit of a romantic, so I, I love a good love story and I, I found that love story to be a pretty yeah. sweet one. Um but I oh, think I, loved it too, yeah. I think uh kinda I don't know if this is this isn't necessarily nihilism, but I think what was really interesting about those two vignettes in, in particular was it just showed um, just kind of how difficult westward movement was for people doing that, whether it was um, – and both of those were heavily concerned with that notion of moving west, what, whether it was to find gold or to move to Oregon. And just like the – both of those movies were kind of 
softer in terms of like their edge. They they weren't the most edgy, which I really enjoyed. But they did have some very serious moments of violence in them too. They were they were they have two really brutal fight scenes in them amongst this kind of soft, pleasant story. Um like All Golden Canyon was a super pleasant movie until that middle part and then it goes back to being pleasant. <laughs> Um, that's Tom Waits, by the way. Did you know I that? know. I didn't realize yeah. that the whole time until today I was researching for yeah. this episode. I didn't realize it. But I just loved how it painted the picture of He wasn't like, even acting in that one. Pe- for people that moved out west, it was not easy. And like all, all those kind of stories you make up in your head about a 49er or the Oregon Trail or Gold Diggers, like it was just really interesting to see the context they put them in and, and the different... Um, kind of roadblocks you would run into as you endeavor to do those things. Yeah. It seems like the West is a perfect context for what David's talking about. Like if you're a victim of your circumstances or if if you're at the whim of chance or someone else's choices, the West is a great context to do that because there's no law and order. There's no control. It's just a very dangerous environment. So absolutely. And, and the gold, like uh, he found this gold and it was so, it was, he he did so much work to get this gold and then in a in an instant it could be taken from him. You yeah. know, but then he takes it back and it's just like I, I kept asking that question of just like what is what is the meaning of these vignettes? And I think going back to David's comments on them being nihilistic filmmakers, I, I do think like that's part of the intrigue about the Cohen brothers is the movies can feel meaningless. But you know that they have meaning, but it's hard to ascertain what the meaning is. So it can, and I do think sometimes their meaning is meaninglessness. Life is meaningless. But yeah, I can see what you guys are saying. Let me play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, so in the first in the first story, uh, Buster Scruggs he gets what he deserves. He's a violent man, and he dies a, a victim of violence. In the second vignette, James Franco he committed a crime and. Um, as a source of comedy, he gets away with it <laughs> temporarily, but then he ends up experiencing the consequences of that. And then in the the gold mining one, in the the one we're talking about now, um, justice it ends up justly, doesn't it? The guy ends up surviving and walking away with the gold, and then um, it okay. does if you don't take into account the land, because the land, in addition. Like the guy gets his spoils, but it's at the expense of that beautiful scenery. Like he goes and pillages. This, yeah, when Tom Waits shows up, the butterflies leave. Like he's <laughs> the minnows. All the animals evacuate. run away from him, and I thought that was a really they did that very on purpose to just show like how disruptive man is to nature. Yeah, and our conquests are complicated. You know, there's there's kind of inner turmoil amongst us, but regardless of who the victor is, there's a consequence left on the earth. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So I'm not saying that like they're making concrete statements about justice. I think I'm challenging the notion that they're, they're nihilistic. totally nihilistic. Okay. Um, even the the last one too. Yeah, and and I agree with that. That's why I kind of qualified it, and I said more like existentialist, which I'll get into when we talk about the last segment. But when you think about the fact that like yes, Buster Scruggs is a mass murderer basically, and the fact that he is himself murdered seems that's just justice james franco is punished like you know all these things like casey's saying but in the struck like the narrative structure it's it doesn't pay off that way buster scruggs 
is winning, winning, winning. Everything's just going perfectly for him because he is just a, a god in his story. He can do whatever he wants. And all of a sudden, he just dies for no reason. Like, narratively, there is no reason for it. The absurdity... Of, and or, and he even says... He's like, well, that's just what happens. You know, you live and you're on top. And then all of a sudden, one day, some new person comes along. And the message in there is of... Like, it doesn't matter if you are literally... You can kick a table and make a guy kill himself and and then you start a musical number and everybody celebrates you like even if you're that kind of a powerful character you're just gonna die eventually and it's it's gonna end at some random moment and for that reason like that story still feels like it has that nihilistic edge or or, or that story in particular feels nihilistic in other stories it feels more existentialist in the sense that Yes, the world is harsh and will chew you up at a moment's notice, but it doesn't mean that you're still not finding value in life somehow. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Well, that that's to go to the gal who got rattled, because we are kind of just marching through these. Um, I think that one left me the most. I just I think I felt the most because I was surprised by their choice to let that old man live. And um, again, a spoiler alert. Um, to let the old man live, but let that young woman who whose life was just infused with, you know, some pretty hopeful prospects for her life to end at her own hand on bad advice from the guy that gets to live. Like, I think it it brought up that question of like, why does this guy get to exist while this girl's life stops existing for me? And and I was I was really struck by that that choice they made to have her be the the victim of of that conflict. Well, I think all these things are kind of true to reality, right? Like somebody that lives in such a violent world as Buster Scruggs is probably going to die a violent death. Um, history plays like narr- like literature, film and history itself plays that out. And I that story that Russ is talking about feels pretty true to reality as well that that guy might survive because he's really skillful at surviving in those circumstances and that woman might not survive for the converse reason that she's not very skillful. And so I'm not sure those things for me really, um, I think each of us can like interpret those things as nihilistic or meaningful, um, in the same way we can interpret reality that way. What, what, how, what would you classify it by way of genre though? So, cause I feel like I, the, the genre I want to use is realism, but I feel like in classic in a classic Hollywood movie, the old guy and the girl would have both lived and they would have gone back and happily ever after. But a lot of times the Coen brothers make a nuanced decision to el- eliminate one of several characters. And they just they like the ending of No Country for Old Men, like it just happens so abruptly and there's a reality to that. And from a genre standpoint, like what what kind of filmmaking is that because they they usually this whole anthology is about subverting expectations yeah and and i I feel like that's a hallmark of the coen brothers is is subverting expectations is is there a genre for for them that we could classify them in well part of their genius is they don't fit neatly into they are a like a thing unto themselves they um and that's what great artists do is nobody's ever truly creative 
like nobody creates brand new things. The best artists reinterpret what they already know. So in, in music, the Beatles were reinterpreting blues and soul music in new and profound ways in country music. And, um, and I think the Coen brothers, they're taking Westerns and crime dramas and reinterpreting them in new and fresh ways that are just mind boggling. And also back to the nihilism, when I think through their movies, like Fargo, it seems nihilistic, but Francis McDormand is a truly good and heroic person who triumphs in the end. And then the uh, moral compass. Yeah. And then, um, you guys can remind yep. me. I can't remember specifically, but I think Tommy Lee Jones prevails he, in he, the end. In a way. In No Country for Old Men. He wrestles with meaning, though, I at mean, the end I, of that. And yes. so, to be honest, like I don't like movies. It's a hollow victory. I, I don't like movies that have no moral grounding. Like I, I, I don't like those movies. And I, I don't sense that in the Coen Brothers movies, which is why I love them so much. Can I? Well, I'm, I'm going to push back on that a little bit, though, Casey, because I'm not saying that there is no moral grounding in Coen Brothers movies. I'm saying that the moral grounding does not ensure you of anything like Tommy Lee Jones wins. I suppose I don't, I mean, by what metric though? Like he's a good guy. He lives like that's winning, I suppose. But the, you know, he, he failed to do anything effective in that movie. I mean, Anton Chigurh still gets away. I mean, he breaks his arm, but so what the, uh, uh, Frances McDormand in Fargo, like she's a genuinely good person in this world of weird corruption and stuff, but it doesn't stop any of the murders from happening. Like all these innocent people die anyway. Like it's not like, yeah, and so you know that's, what I'm saying? That's what I think is great about the Coen Brothers movies though. Cause that's, that's what the world is like is it's a real, it can often be like no, a agree. really dark and disturbing and hopeless place. And so like for me, the best art helps me to see goodness and hope in bleak and dark situations and i th- i think the coen brothers art does that and that's i think that's what makes it so profound for me aside from the fact that they're just so entertaining sure. yeah and that and that is why i say the existentialist bit is because i don't believe that they that they're saying nothing like i i don't believe that they're saying that there is no such thing as something can be good or bad or anything in their movies i think that they have a moral sense i just don't think that you deserve anything for it at the end. Like you can still die randomly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which rings true to reality for me, but okay. Let's, um, let's move into the last vignette, the mortal remains and, um, kind of tied into that larger theme that, um, David, you had, you had mentioned to us, uh, before we were recording, I, I was just wondering if you could share kind of your thought about how this movie felt like a kind of a recap of the Coen brothers, career yeah so so this story is what appears to be again it's not confirmed but it appears to be three spoiler alert three souls are being taken to the afterlife by a what i interpret as an angel and a demon who uh are escorting them on a carriage and the three the three humans start talking about the value of life and bickering with each other and I believe my interpretation is that they're going to hell at the end. Is that how you guys read that? I don't know. This is the, the story I understand the least. I just want to say one more John Ford reference. Like, did any of you guys have you guys seen Stagecoach? No. That movie just um, that story reminded me so much of Stagecoach. But um, go ahead, Russ. Okay. It reminded me of the beginning of Hateful Eight because they're also on a stagecoach. 
Interesting. Which probably is reference is probably referencing Stagecoach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it really reminded me of the play No Exit by Jean Paul Sartre, who is one of the I, I had the same one of the the you, yeah, I had the same okay. thought. Who again? He's one of the inventors of existentialism. existentialism. Yeah. That that vignette felt the most uh, truly like pure existential, like that one, the last one for sure. Yeah. Go ahead, though. And in yeah, it's also if you've seen the Good Place, uh, basically the premise for for hell in the Good Place, where uh, literally that's where the the phrase "hell is other people" comes from. And you so you've got these characters debating over life, like uh, you know. Like all men are are the same as ferrets, and you got like no, there's there's sinful, there's the sinful, and there's the good people, or what? All these debates. And then you've got the demon and the angel who are basically watching them bicker about the meaning of life. And the the demon guy says, I believe the quote is that he loves to watch what the people say because uh, he loves to hear them uh, talk about you know what the meaning of life is. And they're like, do you like? Have, has anybody figured it out? And he's like, "How can I know? All I can do is all I can do is watch, or something like that." And I felt like those were the Cohen brothers, kind of like a little insight into their minds. I may be projecting this onto them, but that that's just like what their films are. They they put these people in a little box and they make them hash out what life means, and they get to sit and and watch along with us. And they're like, "Interesting, like like look at the way this is playing out. What do we make of this, everybody?" So. It's funny, like just hearing you interpret the Coen Brothers because it's very you, just um, teasing out uh, deep <laughs> narrative themes in all of their movies. Whereas when I experience the Coen Brothers, I tend to think in terms of like film genres and how they're um, playing off of different film genres. Um, so I don't know. Yep. That's it's just interesting our different lenses on the Coen Brothers. Um, so I was the most confused by that story. I agree. To me, it like. By the end of it, I'm like, oh, okay. These people are on their way to the afterlife. They're all dead. But I did. I couldn't make much more out of it other than that. And so, I, like this, ex- we were messaging about this um, before we recorded this episode. Yep. And I think those insights helped me to understand the story better. And I did some reading on it before we recorded. And some of the reading I did um, agreed with a lot of your insights about like are people meant like people. Are they more like animals and things like that? I think I think it's pretty insightful, David. Yeah, David. No exit was written by who again? Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre. Yeah, that's the right. French existentialist. When I watched uh, the Mortal Remains, it, it reminded me a ton of uh, a Serious Man, which is also like one of their more existential movies. And I I think what was interesting, um, I'm kind of viewing the Ballad of Buster Scruggs in my mind as. This could very easily be their like last movie, and it it would have made a good like goodbye, everyone. We were the yeah. Cohen brothers, and this is what we were all about. You could kind of locate like the six styles of the movie. You could almost be like those are six different genres that the Cohen brothers have made several movies within that kind of yeah uh, style, like <laughs> the first one, Lady Killers, and Intolerable Cruelty, near. Al Gadonches, like totally reminded me of Raising Arizona, Oh Brother Where Art Thou? And just like uh, Yeah, it's such a quirky meal paper, ticket, yeah. Miller's Crossing, like just the tone and the the style and the cine- cinematography, it felt like it felt like they were paying homage to themselves, which normally would be like you guys are self-aggrandizing. But to me it, it felt like they were just kind of reflecting on 
who they have been as filmmakers. And I, I really enjoyed it from that regard because it didn't feel pompous. It felt like a sincere reflection using the vehicle of a, of a genre that they both could clearly have an affection for. And it just felt, it was cool to, to kind of watch two directors that have had had this amazing, you know, almost 40 year career kind of reflect on the work that they've done so far. I don't know if a lot of it, it, you know, David, you mentioned that about ready player one, like it kind of reminded me of what Spielberg was doing yeah. in ready player one of just kind of reflecting on what he's created thus far in his life. And I think the Coen brothers did that with this series of vignettes. Yeah, it, I mean, it felt like very classic Coen Brothers, the Coen Brothers doing what they do best. Um, and it felt good in that way, I think. Yeah, it's a nice note to end on, probably. Any last thoughts? We could end on that, but do you guys want to... I have a last thought. That was my last word. Uh, Casey, sounds like you got one. Before we started recording, we were talking about Widows, and uh, I said, I'm so glad I get to live in a time period when Steve McQueen is making movies. But then as we've been talking about the Coen brothers, I feel the same way about them. I feel blessed to live in <laughs> the world. I mean, I was a teenager when they re- became a big deal in the 90s and feel blessed to live in the world when Coen brothers movies are coming out. So, Casey, do you remember uh, when I was in college, I used to say Coen brothers, the best living directors. Discuss. Yeah. Do you, do you agree with that? Um, I think it, well, when you said that, that was when no brother or, um, no country for old men came out and it really felt true at that point. Um, they are among the greatest living directors, but Scorsese was around then too. So that's difficult. And now we have Steve McQueen. Yeah. You know who wasn't around? Damien Chazelle, who is the current greatest living director am i right people david uh, david just rolled his eyes we'll talk about so hard no he's not there he's not he's <laughs> not in the same category yet i think as those other three he's getting there. i i don't david I don't, any last words no I, I i think i said everything i had to say okay we don't need to hear about damien chazelle um <laughs> guys i really enjoyed talking about buster scruggs with you both um hopefully film lovers out there you guys enjoyed the conversation that we had as well David, I think now that the episode's over, we should probably get you out of the pit and give you a proper burial. Sorry again that you got shot in the face, but that's what you get when you try to steal gold from an old man. So until we give David a proper Christian burial, my name is Russell Dietrich. My name is Casey Summers. And I'm David Ryan Anderson. More like dead Ryan Anderson. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Film Lovers Podcast. To feel the love and to find out more information, please visit us online at filmloverspodcast.com. They were Nazis, dude? Oh, come on, Donnie. They were threatening castration. Uh-huh. Are we going to split hairs here? No. Am I wrong? Well, he, he didn't. Man, they Am were I? nihilists, man. Huh? They kept saying they believed in nothing. Nihilists.